Now, something that just got out of me as well, uh, you know, reading about racial sacrifice, you know, and that whole that whole cycle of, you know, allowing for some advancement uh, when the, the, the interests converge and it helps white people's interests and, you know, letting racial sacrifice happen when white interests are threatened. Sometimes I feel like it doesn't even necessarily have to be white people's interests being threatened to cause racial sacrifice. I think sometimes just the ceasing of the interest convergence, like, okay, we're not getting anything out of this anymore. You may not actually be threatening anything, but, you know, you just kind of, this this gesture has outlived its usefulness. So we're just going to let it um, um, go. That happens, I think, a lot with the modern iterations of this um, cycle. Like, for example, if we look at when the Ferguson uprisings happen and all these um, um, protests and uprisings and riots and things are starting to happen, um, there was an interest in finding a palatable group of representatives or, or mascots to be the face of, you know, uh, revolution. I think a lot of the actual people in the streets were really kind of scaring the powers that that be. Like like these people are really fed up and mad. And we get this elevation of you know the Black Lives Matter leaders who you know kind of remind me very much of how you describe Kimberly Ken- Crenshaw's project in Part Three. Like they're trying to seek some kind of reconciliation with uh, power and you know appealing to mindsets and hearts and 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 all these things and etc. And people like um, D. Ray McKesson and a class of intellectuals starts getting elevated around that time who basically fall into the line of what you describe in your three-piece series as part of the new liberal idealist school of uh, CRT, like like the latest people in it. And also like people who were, you know, part of that school before start getting like elevated. Like Kimberly Crenshaw didn't come to prominence with um, Black Lives Matter and, and the Ferguson uprisings and everything that came after. But there was this kind of feeling of everyone just rediscovering her work. Like it was just kind of sitting there. But suddenly uh, people like her and Bell Hook are like rock stars uh, and dressed into prominence. And what I find interesting is like people like um, the Black Lives Matter founders, uh, people like Kimberly Crenshaw and these other people, they never actually, to me, reached the point where they started um, agitating and surprising um, the, the liberal powers that be. But there was a sense in which, okay, Trump is gone. Um, all this radical sentiment has been properly dissipated and and taken, taken away. Like everyone's kind of demoralized. Like I, I feel like people just kind of spent all their energy you know, protesting and nothing happened. I feel like there's a kind of um, giving up that kind of happened, at least for now. You know, maybe they'll find the energy again, but I feel like there was a moment and the moment passed. But there's a sense, there's a less to me sense of urgency around, um, hey, we need an elevated class of activists to let be seen that we're doing something. And suddenly, all of a sudden, we're getting these articles in the media about um, Black Lives Matter using funds and misappropriating them to buy house. And mm-hmm. we're seeing uh, people being like, let go from like their their jobs people like 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 ibram kendi his slate of projects on netflix is getting canceled like anti-racist baby and all these things suddenly it's like hey we don't think it's gonna be profitable there's no there's no point to this and it's like i don't get a sense that any of those people ever stepped up their game once they got power uh Kind of the kind of the way that uh, Derek Bell did, like you know how he used his platform to actually ratchet up his criticism. They just weren't needed anymore. They weren't necessary, and suddenly they just started becoming like like racial sacrifices. Like those stories about Patrice Cullors buying the houses and um, where all the funds going in Black Lives Matter. Those protests have been leveled against them for like years, but the mainstream liberal media would never give them credence. They would never only the only the right wing media would um, talk about it, and so. 
suddenly for New York Magazine and Washington Post and all these places to suddenly start writing these articles. And they're not new rumors and not new discoveries. They were always there to be discovered. Uh, a lot of right wing sources um, had a lot of the same the same proof. And yeah, I, I think that's one of the scarier parts of this whole racial sacrifice thing is you can become a racial sacrifice without even really, to me, threatening the power system. You can just cease being being useful, you know, and and boom. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, that term useful there is is a, a, a very insightful extension of what Bell is, is talking about. And the examples that you, that you cite around um, Kendi or, or Black Lives Matter leaders, um, I think, illustrates very well, you know, and sort of uh, local scale, you know, sort of in very specific examples of the kind of cyclical nature that that uh bell is talking about when it comes to the history of so-called racial progress in the united states um you know the the a sort of staple notion principle concept within uh black intellectual history for at least the last 200 years and articulated by many different thinkers um in the tradition is that you know power never gives up anything without um without being forced to without being required to and in most of these instances you know you see the interest that the power structure has in using some of these figures some of these movements or ideas to temporarily sort of uh put on the show of of advancing some kind of racial justice or th or things like this and then of course when it becomes no longer useful to do so they not only give it up but actively toss it out um you know just to to make the point and just like you know like i said earlier in a few years towards the end of the decade you know maybe the beginning of the next decade uh we're gonna see another backlash to crt or some kind of similar you know uh um controversy in that way because it's been sort of uh manifesting and disappearing manifesting and disappearing for for several decades now but you're also going to see the same kind of thing in a year or two there might be you know um another uh you know fatal violent event where a black person or black people are killed or harmed in some kind of way it's going to make national news and all of a sudden white people are going to care again and uh you know these anti-racist books are going to become new york times bestsellers the top sellers on amazon white people are going to have all these you know workshops talking amongst themselves and then after after that sort of fades and, and other concerns come back in then that stuff is just going to go away um you know sometimes quietly sometimes more loudly but but nevertheless that's what's going to be and so um and this again comes back to Derek bell's principle about the permanence of racism in the united states there's no evidence historically or contemporarily that suggests that racism is going to go away and um and there's no evidence that equality racial equality is ever going to be achieved so that's why bell says we need to reorient our activities um for defending or 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 allowing the black community in the united states to thrive we need to reorient our aims to something else uh put our energies elsewhere that's what he's saying um and again i think this is why he gets left out of the um mainstream discussions of crt because most white people especially a lot of the white people i know are not interested in hearing that kind of thing um and so because it would be perceived to alienate uh you know white people's psychologies white people's perceived interests they don't really want to read this stuff they don't really want to hear this stuff and 
and they certainly wouldn't accept it as a legitimate um, politics if they if they were actually to take the time to understand what Derek Bell is actually saying. Uh, something too that jumped out at me with the whole um, you know racial progress um, in times of interest convergence uh, followed by racial sacrifice when um, white interests are under threat or even just not being served not even under threat but just not being served I think liberal whites have really kind of mastered a way in making the two of them almost happen at the same time and what I mean by that is like there is like a racial sacrifice to me that can happen that doesn't that could be purely like ideological and, and to, to, to give an example like you have um, you have the rise of CRT and hiring Derek Bell and publishing it, you know, which I think flatters a lot of white liberals and academics views of themselves as, you know, being interested in progress, being interested in self-reflection and self-criticism. But um, as people like Derek Bell keep um, ramping up their claims and start actually demanding like action, uh, you know, not just not just words, uh, you know, Derek Bell's career, uh, you know, starts changing. And and also after he's dead, C CRT gets watered down and diluted into like, the liberal idealist version that you describe. And I feel like that's kind of a ideological or intellectual like racial sacrifice but we see it like in a bunch of little ways like there's someone like Ta-Nehisi Coates he, he, when he rose to power I mean rose to prominence I should say with the reparations essay it's when I saw that I was like wow I cannot believe that white people white white liberals are platforming uh a reparations uh, piece, you know, and I think it was in their interest intellectually to, you know, be seen as entertaining it and and partaking in the self-criticism involved in it, you know, but what happened after that? There's no actual, when it came time to actually keep talking about it to the point that you start taxing people, giving money, like, like, like okay, what's the tangible thing that's going to happen from it? Suddenly, Ta-Nehisi Coast gets offered like jobs at Marvel Comics, um, HBO Max deals, and it's almost like intellectually, he became a racial sacrifice like like they didn't have to like, like fire him or penalize him or punish him to get him out of the paint they just give him an alternate set of incentives like hey why don't you focus on this instead like th this was cool we're glad you did it but uh here's a million dollar comics and novels career and and why don't you write essays about you know why trump sucks and stuff like that and in a way there's like an interest convergence and a sacrifice happening at once there's a convergence of elevating him to superstar like you know this is a form of symbolic progress but also there's a racial sacrifice in whatever teeth were in this writing or ideology whatever um bite you know was in there that could actually lead to an eventual um, act against white interests like you know like for example real reparations being paid and white people losing a chunk of their material superiority to to black people um, suddenly we see there's just a whole different career track for him and he never yeah. writes about rep reparations again like, like like the the application of Derek Bell's framework you know when you really like sit in it you can just see it manifest in so many ways to me at least yeah I mean so yeah so this is this is a very good uh, uh, point that you're making and, and I think this can bring us back to this distinction between CRT realism and CRT idealism because fundamentally I think that this is one of the things that really got overlooked in all of the CRT you know controversies but it's also of the utmost importance for understanding how Bell is doing something so distinctive compared to everything else that gets called or should I say most other things that get called critical race theory and uh and this has to do kind of with um what we might call their like implied moral psychologies so how is it that people actually make decisions uh about ethics right what what is it that people what what do they base it on and for Derek Bell and other CRT realists they base their decisions on interests 
for the CRT idealists, they base their decisions on knowledge. Now, these are these are not that's not what Derek Bell and the idealists do. That's what they believe about how humans make decisions, right? So, for example, the idealists, um, they're going to say, why is it that white people uh, do racist things, say racist things, believe racist things, support racist policies or politicians? Well, it's because they don't know, right? So what do we need to do? We need to educate them. And if we just show white people the true history here, then maybe they'll see that they're doing the wrong thing. They'll have the appropriate knowledge to do the right thing. So the moral failing is sort of uh, blamed on an epistemic failing, right? A lack of knowledge or, or improper understanding. And so education becomes the way. And now these things are not CRT, but uh, you can see how this same kind of idea of, mor of moral psychology plays out in some of these popular things whether this is the New York Times 1619 project, right, to enlighten white people about the real history of, of slavery and segregation and mass incarceration and, and anti-Black racism, or uh, uh, Kendi's project of anti-racism. Um, I actually saw an interview with him where he was talking about, uh, you know, his work is grounded in an understanding of the history of racist ideas, not racist structures, not lynching, not cutting off Black men's dicks but like you know i'm talking like that's some real stuff right but he's yeah. like racist ideas like what do white people believe falsely about black people and so on um so you can kind of see this idea that you know racism is a manifestation or emerges from improper understanding of the world or something like this right it's a it's a knowledge problem and so education or awareness becomes the solution and it also lets uh, white people off the hook to a large degree because it makes it kind of make it seem like if they knew how wrong it was, they would, um, you know, have done the right thing. So it kind of makes it seem like, OK, th this isn't people deliberately, knowingly doing the wrong thing. This is people who are just like uh, inherently moral and looking for justice, who just were given wrong information, which I think is another piece of the racial interest in elevating a elevating a candy. Like, like if the whole problem is just interest, like, hey, I only did the bad thing because nobody properly told me how it was the bad thing it reinforces the idea that okay this must be a good person that's the only thing that uh stopped them from doing doing the right thing right and i think that this does have you know a lot of um rhetorical or coming back to this notion of white affect um leverage because then you're going to white people and you're saying well look i understand that you, that you believe this or that you support you know xyz policy or politician whatever the case may be but it's just that you didn't understand what was really going Going on here and so that's kind of like that becomes the approach Derek bell has a, a very different and i think a lot of the other crt realists have a very different understanding of moral psychology for the realists people don't tend to make moral decisions based on knowledge people tend to make moral decisions based on interests and oftentimes these interests can be sort of uh, soft, right? Like some kind of uh, prestige or social status, or it can be harder interests, maybe something like economics, specifically money, job, housing, whatever the case may be. And so this is why Bell says people make decisions based off of what they're 
real or perceived interests are. And this moral psychology is very different. Um, Bell actually responds to this sort of idealist notion that knowledge is the problem in a in a story about what he calls the racial data storm and in a story that's in faces at the bottom of the well the chapter is called racism's secret bonding and i do have this passage here so i'll just i'll, I'll read it because the race the um racial data storm in this in this uh science fiction story um three black scientists are able to hijack some space equipment and they're able to shower down into the minds of white people all the knowledge of all the statistics about the history of slavery and segregation and anti-black violence and even contemporary things about housing and jobs and so white people's minds fill up with the knowledge of of black oppression and you know and they start to protest we won't we don't accept anti-black racism anymore and we want policy changes and after the allegory then bell in his character has a conversation with geneva crenshaw who is sort of one of the muses and and, and inspirations in his in his works and geneva crenshaw asks him so do you really think that more data more knowledge given to white people is going to fix it and this is what bell says he says uh no because of experience he says, as I've gotten older and wiser, it's hard for me to admit, but we fool ourselves when we argue that whites do not know what racial subordination does to its victims. Oh, they may not know the details of the harm or its scope, but they know, and that's italicized, no. He says, knowing is the key to racism's greatest value to individual whites and to their interest in maintaining the racial status quo. So if white people actually know what it does, then education isn't going to solve it because it's not a lack of understanding. It's not an epistemological shortcoming or failure. The problem is, is that white people have an interest in white supremacy and maintaining that system because they either perceive themselves to get a benefit from it, or they actually do get a benefit from it, or some mix of those two things. And so in, um, I'm going to come back again, I, I just love confronting authority. He tells this story. He says, back in the 50s, um, some black people that Bell knew, they went into a segregated uh, uh, restaurant, right? Dining, uh, a lunch counter, and they sat down. And of course, the server ignored them, ignored them, ignored them, would not serve them. And finally, uh, a young liberal white couple comes in and sits down next to these two black people. And the server immediately goes over and says, hi, you know, what can I what can I get for you? And the two white people notice kind of what's going on here. And they tell the server, oh, well, we wouldn't want to order until our friends here have been served. And begrudgingly, the server then after all this time of ignoring of ignoring the black people in the restaurant says, okay, well, what can I get for you? And serves them. And Bell says, this is a nice story. You know, it's it's cool that these people did this, right? They they took a stand, they saw somebody being racist, and they said, no, don't do that. But Bell also says, what did they have to give up? What did they have to sacrifice in terms of their own interest to do this? Yep. Not a goddamn thing, right? Because if the server said, I'm not serving any of you, then you need to leave. And the manager came out or whatever and said, get out. Well, the white people would just go to the next restaurant. And and they didn't actually lose anything by by this by the situation. And so Bell says in that moment when those white people's interests aren't at stake, it's very easy for them to do the right thing. But what's the real test of moral courage for Bell is when you do the right thing, even though it is contradictory to your material interests. This is why for Bell, Paul Robeson is a moral exemplar. Paul Robeson sacrificed himself, his own interests for what he thought was right. For Derek Bell, I think he's going 
going to see his protest at Harvard as an example of somebody giving up what would be in their best interest to maintain this, uh, you know, prestigious law school appointment at Harvard, uh, giving that up for the principle of the matter. And this lunch counter example, Bell is going to say, those white people didn't have to give anything up. So to read Kindy, to read um, White Fragility, to uh, put a Black Lives Matter on your sign, white people don't have to give up anything to do those things, right? The question is, are white people actually willing to give up whatever benefits of white supremacy they get for um, racial justice, for uh, real moral advancement. And Bell's going to say, no, because that's not how people make decisions. The system incentivizes uh, racist um, activities, racist actions and beliefs. And so they're going to persist. Um, and so this is a big difference between what Bell is doing and what all these other people are doing who are like, well, we just need to teach. We just need to write the right things. We just need to review the history. We just need to raise awareness, you know, change consciousness, this sort of thing. Bell is going to say, why don't you find some people that are willing to give up what's in their own interest for what is right, and then you'll have something to work with. I think that's going to be his response to that. And this difference between the realists and the idealists within the CRT world really, I think, needs to be highlighted, if not for all the other reasons we talked about today, then at least for that one, because that distinction tells us almost everything we need to know about why CRT uh, can sort of reach these mainstream heights in in American politics in very particular manifestations while leaving out these other traditions of CRT uh, from the from the narrative, from the story completely. I think one thing that's pretty interesting about uh, the idealist uh, school, and this includes uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's uh, intersectionality, which seems to be like the ultimate manifestation of, of it, uh, probably the most uh, successful, uh, is, and you bring, you bring this up in uh, part three, which we're going to um, get into soon, but uh, you kind of bring up, and I think this is something that's uh, very true, I've noticed this too, it posits itself as being like um, the one thing that gets um, race, gender, and class, and that it uh, understands uh, oppression on multiple axes, but even though it always name checks class when describing itself uh, in intersectionality, in practice, it rarely um, actually discusses class. It just it just name checks it, but it doesn't actually really talk about it in any meaningful way. And that, I think that's something that is common amongst almost all schools of um, the liberal idealist critical race theory is that the economic and you know realities of this stuff is not really um, discussed. And there's a there's a segment here in part two of your piece that goes the difference then between realist and idealist approaches to CRT is clear while the realists argue that economic structures are the foundations for structural racism and that economic interests are the primary motivating factor when it comes to white and elite racism the idealists argue that racism is largely a function of language symbols and psychology while the realists view domestic structural racism as a manifestation of the patterns of US empire and capitalism the idea Idealists view racism as a psychological deficiency of whites that prevents middle-class non-whites from joining imperialist and capitalist institutions. Um, but what I find kind of interesting, right, is that despite the despite the idea that the realist school of CRT focuses on 
economic and material realities. And the idealist school focuses on language, symbols, psychology, morality. Um, I would argue that the realist school actually even understands those things better than um, the idealist school does. And what I mean by that is the racial realist framework of um, interest convergence, um, of, of interest convergence and racial progress followed by racial sacrifice, I think it doesn't get enough credit for being a very good psychological and ideal framework as well, because I think that total process totally describes how white people deal with things uh, psychologically and morally in terms of race. Like most people in, in studies of psychology and self-concept, they want to believe that they're good moral people. They want to believe that they're not bad. And that cognitive dissonance that, you know, comes from believing you're a good person and doing bad things is what leads to lots of defense mechanisms, leads to lots of um, neuroses and whatever. This kind of way of like having to reconcile the acts that I do with the person I want to believe that I am. And I, and I feel like the idea of like interest convergence is like a lot of times the ideas and moral views and and intellectual conversations of white people around race needs to have an interest convergence of it has to lead me to believe that I'm ultimately a, a good person who wants to do the right thing. If I can't at least believe that all whites aren't so bad, which is what conservatives want to believe in the interest convergence. Like, like, like their, their interest convergence with their black um, uh, neocolonial stooges is, you know, we want you to give us the psychological interest convergence of belief that whites as a class are not so bad and America is not so bad. You know, the liberals' interest convergence is more like, hey, I want to believe that white liberals like me aren't so bad. And the real bad white people are these other right-wing ones. Like, yeah, whiteness, you know, maybe is kind of uh, bad in this history, but I'm one of the good ones. And even like most of the bad stuff is due to um, ignorance and and whatever. And that same type of racial um, progress and interest convergence like happens because I feel like a lot of these people, these even Kennedys, these Kimberly Crenshaws or whatever, they're usually people who come about after something more radical came first. Like the interest convergence and and that racial progress stuff happens uh, and something like uh, France Fanon can come into vogue, which is a very challenging uh, text. Uh, Derek Bell's uh, works can, you know, come into, come into vogue. The Black Panthers can be, um, you know, very prominent. Uh, Malcolm X or Martin Luther King as originally conceived uh, are now entertained, like, you know, um, Malcolm X is all over mainstream TV and on talk shows and uh, Martin Luther King's, uh, you know, is, is more radical frameworks because people forget or don't know that he actually argued for things like reparations and actual like economic um, uh, incentives. Like that's like that type of psychological uh, racial progress. Like, hey, I'm a good white person. I'm morally willing to entertain this. I'm morally willing or intellectually willing to let Malcolm X get a platform on my show. I'm willing to cover the Black Panthers and and, you know, make them cause cause celebrates in, you know, liberal circles. But what happens to all those things? Like Malcolm X now is uh, a guy who used to believe bad stuff about um, white people, but he realized he went too far. He took a trip to Mecca and he became a kumbaya guy. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, liberals just kind of reduced him to, hey, he's a guy who was kind of uptight, but he kind of realized um, everybody's good. And and white leftists will be like, hey, uh, he realized class is a problem, not, not race, you know, which is... Uh, 
not true. Same same with the Black Panthers. Like the like the Black Panthers now are just uh, an aesthetic that Beyonce uh, can put on during the Super Bowl performance in one of the most capitalist uh, commercial orgies of modern American life. You know, you can have a Black Panthers themed halftime show. You know, like that's a form of racial sacrifice intellectually. Like you know, the, um, Martin Luther King is just somebody whose whole life was about making sure white people and black people could hold hands and and get along. You know, like so that's the type of intellectual or ideological, uh, psychological, racial racial sacrifice. Uh, you know, like all these kind of uh, people who pop up in in the idealist school to me are usually walkbacks from something more radical that uh, white people were psychologically willing to entertain when it served their interest to um, enter entertain it. And and that's like, that I think is the the hidden beauty of Derek Bell is that I I think his so called economic focus of racial sacrifice and interest convergence or whatever is actually a pretty good psychological lens and I, I, idealism lens that's actually better than um like I think he does a better job at even these people's focus uh with it with his theories you, you know like like he's he's better both at the economical side and at the uh moral and psychological psychological side yeah I mean you know this sort of uh materialist uh way of getting at um ethical decision making right in uh in in terms of you know um uh, racism and so on I mean you know it does have a kind of explanatory power that um that the idealist approach just doesn't have because the idealist will say well it's because they didn't know well what happens when you find a white person who not only knows the history of you know black oppression but celebrates it, you know, um, in some of this sort of like Trumpy paleoconservative revival kind of stuff. Then, you know, the the white nationalists or or um, the Richard Spencer kind of things, you know, when, when they celebrate this, how then does the idealist res- like respond to that? They know the history, they studied it and they celebrate it. So now this isn't a, a failing of knowledge. It's got to be something else. And I don't know if this is when they just say, oh, well, then these people are just inherently immoral or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Maybe, maybe that that is the case, but that doesn't actually get us anywhere unless of course they're willing to go you know some kind of really extreme route where they say and the only the only uh solution to this is to round them up and get rid of them somehow you know uh and and i don't hear any of them say that so then it's sort of like what do you do at that point i don't i don't know maybe they would say oh you have to go vote for democrats or something i don't you know some kind of insipid thing like this and so um and so but Derek bell can actually explain well the the paleoconservative you know trumpy white nationalist makes decisions based on their actual perceived interests in the same way as the so-called good white liberals do, right? They just have different ideas, perhaps, about how to achieve their interests or uh, something like that, but they're all making decisions in this kind of way. Um, And so it actually does kind of give a a new kind of explanation. And it decenters us too from, you know, being overly rationalistic that every, that, you know, all of our decisions are somehow, um, you know, fully thought out and present to our consciousness. And it also uh, tempers our individualism, remembering that, you know, we're all organisms that live in social environments, um, which includes language and symbols, as well as uh, economic and and, uh, social incentives and political incentives. And so we respond to all that kind of stuff. And I think the this sort of materialist approach just has uh, this realist approach just has um, uh, a lot more dynamic to it in terms of its explanation 
explanatory power and its ability to capture things while getting getting us away from some of these um, very superficial um, notions of of you know of rationalism, individualism, and so on. Not that reason is bad, but just that we don't only we don't make decisions based on reason alone. And um, and, and if and to the extent that we do make them on reason, uh, it's not that different than the reason that happens in in economics. I mean, we realize this in a lot of ways. Like we, like we use in our society terms like social capital, moral capital. Like on, on some mm. level, like like we do understand that you know people psychology and ideals and morals is not that different than you know physical economics. Like 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 we like we understand um you know about the social currency you have to spend in this uh you know the the, the social capital you have to um sp- that this president has to spend or so 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 it's, so it's like uh, there's this guy I think his name is David Rodinger. He writes um about he tries to write in ways to explain to white leftists um the reasons why uh, class alone isn't going to solve the racism problem. And I think what he does is that's brilliant is that since he knows that they're into the language of wages, currency, whatever, he has like, um, I think the book is called uh, The Wages of Whiteness, where it's like the psychological benefits of whiteness can be as much of a wage to a person as as uh, physical money. You know, what, you know what I mean? Like, like, like they're not, they're not that different. There's a lot of overlap between um, the rational, the rationale of saving, spending, hoarding capital in the physical sense and doing it in the moral, intellectual and uh, psychological sense, you know? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting that you bring up um, uh, wages of whiteness and Rodiger's work because I think he actually does sit at some of the intersections of all these things for me. And um, like, for example, uh, Tanahisi Coates's entire understanding of whiteness is derived from the work of Rodiger. And so, when you read uh, Coates' essay uh, "Trump as the First White President" and things like this, you're getting that kind of approach. Um, and what I think is interesting about um, what is opened up somewhat with Bell's work, but I think the broader um, history of Africana anti-colonialism, both in the United States and abroad, is that you can start to rethink this idea that whiteness is one thing. And this is something that you can't get from Rodiger's work. So, um, you know, some of this is, so in my, in my own work in critical whiteness studies, I actually have, um, a pretty sustained critique of Rodiger and anybody who draws their conception of whiteness from him. Um, and this is for a couple of reasons. So, for example, Rodiger starts publishing um, his work. He's a labor historian. So he's a Marxist and he's trying to figure out how can you account for race within this sort of labor Marxist paradigm of historiography. And the way that he ends up doing this is saying, well, let's look at the way the Irish were treated in the American 19th century. And he goes so far as to say, you know, at one point they were not considered white, but they became white. And this was mind boggling to me. Um, when you actually look at the history, they're considered phenotypically white. The problem is their nationality their language and their religion being uh, largely Gaelic speaking Irish Catholics. This is what was offensive, not to quote unquote white people, but to Protestant Anglo-Saxons or sort of the descendants and of, of the English settlers as they perceive themselves. I'm not saying that this is, you know, like hardcore genealogy, but the way they talked about themselves. And that's where 
the conflict was. And what the Irish did is not just join this, what we would now call today, like wasp culture, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant whiteness. Um, they didn't join, they didn't just join that. They actually created a different kind of whiteness and said, no, not your kind of whiteness. Our kind of whiteness is going to be the kind of whiteness that emerges um, or that's going to, you know, sort of uh, become hegemonic or, or whatever word we want to use for that. And at the same time that the Irish Catholics are doing this in the cities, the Scots-Irish are doing this on the frontier and the plantation owners are doing this in the South. And so what you get are these different versions, I would call them urban whiteness, frontier whiteness, and plantation whiteness that are different kinds of melting pot whiteness that are distinct from the sort of Anglo-Saxon dominance. And throughout this process, then what you actually get are different modalities of whiteness. And so oftentimes, and this is coming back to this question of intersectionality, this is, I think, where we can see a limit to intersectionality, just like the scholars in black male studies who have shown the shortcomings of intersectionality as applied to um, human males in the sense that not every human male has male privilege. And in fact, being a racialized male um, is more detrimental in some contexts in terms of like the violence um, that can be uh, imposed upon you um, than being a racialized female, because for in-groups that are patriarchal, the outgroup males are the main, uh, perceived as the main threats. Um, and so, but we can also see the same thing here with uh, something like race or whiteness. Whiteness isn't one monolithic thing. There are many different kinds of whiteness. And I think what we have failed to do is provide a really robust historical and contemporary taxonomy of these different kinds of whiteness. Um, yeah, America is especially bad at that because it's like it's always one binary or the other when it comes to race. Like, like we're so trained to think of race in a binary. When you look at like places like Brazil or South Africa and how they can taxonomize race to the most uh, outrageous, outrageous degrees, not saying it's a good thing because they, they use it to create like hierarchies of, of oppression and privilege and, and you know, whatever. But uh, I think like America with the one drop rule, I think really kind of created that ingrained way of looking at race that either you're 100% white with all the benefits of whiteness or you're something else. And, and to, to give a quick example, like there was this idea of, you know, um, people thinking Hispanic or Latino was was a race of its own. And then, you know, people started pushing back on that saying, hey, um, Latino is not a race. It's a ethnicity and you can have such a thing as white Latinos and, you know, uh, black Latinos or whatever. And then there became this weird overcorrection where now when people talk about it, like what seemed like a good thing at first, like, okay, people now kind of realize uh, there's a little more nuance than just saying Latinos are, are race. That within that race, there can be different racial hierarchies. Now I notice there's this thing where people are like, if you're not Afro-Latino, then you must be a white Latino. You know, so so they'll they'll just call somebody uh, who is not clearly Afro-Latino like, hey, you're operating in in whiteness. Like, like somehow all Latinos now you to just become black or they're full-fledged whites with the full benefits and privileges and whatever. And it's like, okay, that's like such an oversimplification, similar to like the whole way to look at the Irish like some either the Irish were cut out of whiteness altogether or they were anointed like you know 100% uh, white and there's things like modalities and nuances and you know different uh, and it's kind of interesting that a lot of these people who do like you know what you're talking about um, will consider themselves intersectional but that's a perfect example of intersect intersections being avoided in favor of just kind of stark binary single axes single axis analysis. 
Yeah. And well, so, and I think this is, you know, uh, important because when you look at the history, Rodeberg's work came into the discipline of philosophy from history, largely through the work of Charles Mills. Um, and, you know, Charles was a, a great, you know, mentor and, and a great person and a great scholar. Um, and so I, I wouldn't have been able to do my work in this area without him. But I do see that in his early stuff, especially the racial contract, um, he's relying on Rodiger's conception of whiteness. And this becomes popularized in the discipline of philosophy. So for the last 20 years, philosophers have been talking about whiteness as a singular thing. But if you just go back to the discipline of history and you see that there are some other historians like Matthew Fry Jacobson, who in Whiteness of a Different Color responds to Rodiger using a different methodology rather than using labor history like Rodiger does. Uh, Jacobson uses cultural history and he shows, well, there's all these different conceptions of whiteness that are competing. Well, if philosophy takes this up, which it hasn't really done, I tried to make some headroads in this, but I'm only one person. But if you go back and use Jacob's cult Jacobson's cultural history to show that there are many modalities of American whiteness. You can actually do a history of philosophy approach to taxonomizing these things. And then you can ask new questions. Like, so for example, some white people in 2016 voted for Hillary Clinton. Some people in 2016, white people in 2016 voted for Donald Trump. What can explain the difference in choice? And some people will say, well, these white people and these white people, they're all white. And so since they share that variable, that variable is the same across those groups. And therefore, the causal mechanism for their difference of voting must be some other thing. Maybe it's class, maybe it's knowledge, maybe it's this or that. But what if there's different conceptions of whiteness? such that this kind of whiteness can lead white people to vote this way, and this kind of whiteness can lead white people to vote this way. And not just two kinds of whiteness, but different kinds of whiteness that have to come together in different kinds of coalitions or different kinds of uh, um, uh, connections, patterns, and so on. Now, all of a sudden, you've got something new here because you can say, oh, well, among the various kinds of factors that are at play here, so are different kinds of whiteness. And when you combine this kind of whiteness with this economic class and this region, uh, geographical region, then you get this kind of politics. When you when you combine this kind of other kind of whiteness, a different kind of whiteness with class, with region, so on, you get this other kind of politics. And now all of a sudden, whiteness takes on a different kind of causal explanation than it does under these sort of monolithic uh, approaches to whiteness that you get from the labor historians like Rodiger. And um, and so coming back to Ta-Nehisi Coates, Trump is the first white president and people who voted for him voted on the basis of whiteness. Did the white people who voted for Hillary Clinton Clinton vote any less on the basis of whiteness? No, that's absurd. Those people voted on some kind of conception of whiteness. It just happens to be a different conception of whiteness than the white people who voted for Donald Trump. And it's this, you know, just to sort of put this in a, in a shorthand sort of way, it's a kind of liberal whiteness that wants to perceive itself as good as inclusive, opposed to that bad kind of whiteness that is associated with the sort of paleoconservative revival that Trump represents. And so, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton wouldn't have been a non-white president. She just would have been a different kind of white president than Donald Trump was. Yeah. And so this is a far more, I think, nuanced, sophisticated and interesting way of talking about 
these kinds of things. Because again, we're not giving into this white liberal um, impulse to let themselves off the hook or to make it about just a failure of knowledge. No, the kind of conception that they have of themselves as a white person feeds into this as its own kind of thing. And then you put that in context with other things like um, economic class, region, so you know, and the list can go on in, in that kind of way. And so, um, and so I think that this is a very this is a much more interesting way of of accounting for all of this. And I do think that this kind of way, while not explicit in the work of Derek Bell or other CRT realists, is not necessarily incompatible with it, though I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that, you know, oh, Derek Bell endorses this or I've derived this straight from CRT realism. I would say that the work would need to be done to show how those things would fit together, um, these different kinds of views of whiteness and 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 that sort of thing. But this kind of view of whiteness, I think, is inconsistent with CRT idealism in that in the way that it manifests most of the time. You know, uh, that that Trump is the first white president article, like uh, if Tanahasi uh, Code's reparations article was um, the racial progress, the, the intellectual racial progress uh, phase of his career. I felt like that was the true intellectual racial sacrifice. Like, like when I when I saw that, I'm like, OK, this is a way different guy than who I thought I was reading when I read that uh, reparations reparations piece. That that piece was kind of very incoherent and it seemed very much an attempt to kind of reorient himself to. Uh, shifting white liberal interests, like, like, like he was shifting himself to a new interest convergence with uh, white liberals, and uh, I feel like that was a kind of dashing of a lot of uh, promise. I was kind of disappointed by that article um, for the reasons that that you said. I mean, you put it way way better than I would have, but yeah, it was uh, it was very much um, kind of helping white liberals portray a image of whiteness that was very beneficial to them and as you said uh let them let them off the hook i want to read a, a passage um before we move on to the and ask one last question before we move on to the kimberly crenshaw part this part actually took longer than i planned but it just went so many interesting places uh but i just want to make sure i read this part i think it's very good it says uh both liberal media outlets and right-wing media outlets erase the realist slash idealist distinction because they want contemporary crt to appear more radical than it actually is. Liberals want CRT to appear more radical so that they can trick leftists into joining their Democratic Party coalition. Conservatives want CRT to appear more radical so they can fearmonger their reactionary audiences with a make-believe boogeyman. But there are historical and intellectual reasons for this erasure as well. And then you describe um, two trends that you say lead to the erasure of the Derrick Bell realist school of CRT in favor of the um, idealist school that we have that we have now. And uh, would you mind just summarizing those two trends uh, pretty quickly before you move on to Kimberly Crenshaw? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I do think that, you know, there's a contemporary political interest in in sort of obscuring the nuances within the intellectual history of, of CRT. Um, but the intellectual history itself also has, you know, played a role here uh, in, in the same way. So, you know, coming back to this notion of interest convergence, like among the people who were working in CRT from the late 80s through the early 2000s, who do you think is going to get grants and praise from university deans, donors, backing from the power structure? Is it going to be a school of thought that says, look, white people fundamentally make their moral decisions based on what their perceived economic interests are. They have a perceived economic interest in maintaining white supremacy. And so that's what they're going to do. And we're never going to achieve racial equality. So we need to think about 
what is going to be our alternative here? How are we going to fight for ourselves outside of this uh, idea that we're supposed to help America become what it's supposed to be? Or is it going to be a school of, of thought that says, look, we're really interested in just helping white people see the error of their ways. And once we do, we will be we will be um, contributing, however incrementally, to that broader arc of justice in the universe. Like that first one is not going to get a lot of attention uh, from donors, from you know grants, um, uh, institutes, deans, um, and and university administrators. But the second one is there's a lot of money to be made there, and um, and 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 a lot of I think payoff right in terms of interest convergence. The power structure will see that as useful. So that's what gets funded, and everything else gets defunded. So now there's an incentive structure in place so that people who want to go into this field, well, do they want prestige? Do they want that faculty, that tenure track appointment? Do they want a research uh, grant or award? Um, what are they going to write about? They're going to write about stuff that's pleasing to the power structure. Um, j- just controversial enough to be interesting without being threatening, if I can put it that way. And, you know, and this isn't my own insight. I mean, Richard Delgado talks about this um, in his major essay um, from back in 2003. So, you know, this is sort of an internal critique among CRT uh, authors that some of the realists like Delgado are leveraging against the idealist school. And for Delgado, it's rooted in the way that the Black Panthers were treated. The Black Panthers seen as uh, a threat, so they're neutralized, while less threatening um, uh, Black activists, intellectuals are promoted. And Robert Allen wrote about this in terms of the field of Black studies in 1974. He's like, look, Black studies is getting defunded because it's too radical. And uh, and the, the least radical stuff is the stuff getting the most funding, getting the most awards, the most prestige, the most support institutionally. And so, you know, I think we can just kind of see this, um, this pattern more broadly. So, um, yeah, so that's Delgado's sort of, um, you know, insight about that. The other thing is, and this comes from the work of, of Tommy Curry, is looking at how the phrase critical race theory itself originally meant work about the, the relationship between racism and American law to just being things that are theories about race. So from the time that the phrase critical race theory was coined in the late 80s through the early 2000s, it went from referring to a very specific tradition of legal thought in the United States to being a broader academic slogan or marketing term for work on the question of race. And so, um, and as Curry documents, I think, very well, um, it was Black philosophers who largely did this. Um, um, Leonard, I'm sorry, um, Lucius Outlaw, he mentions, he mentions Charles Mills, and he mentions Lewis Gordon as sort of three major examples of Black intellectuals, Black philosophers, professional philosophers, who helped the term critical race theory expand, move out of its original context to just mean um, scholarship on race in general. So then when you fast forward 20 years, and we see these right-wingers stirring up all this stuff about critical race theories being taught in school. Well, what are we talking about? Oh, we're talking about Hannah Nicole Jones and 1619 Project. We're talking about Tana Hesse Coates. We're talking about um uh we're talking about the um anti-racism Kindy's work. Now all of a sudden, CRT means broadly this stuff about anything that's about race. And surely the right wingers who are doing this know what they're doing, 
But through some kind of accident of history or unforeseen consequence, the groundwork was laid for this in the 90s by some Black intellectuals themselves, um, expand, taking that term CRT out of its original context and ma making it mean something more broadly. And so I think a lot of what some of the people who are working in CRT are doing now, especially people who identify more with a sort of realist orientation of CRT, they're trying to reclaim the term and say, look, not everything about race is critical race theory. And if you want to use that, maybe use lowercase instead of capitalization. But real capital letter CRT critical race theory is this it, tradition of legal studies in American law. That's what it refers to. And so, um, and so I think those two things, the, the incentive structure economically within academia, and also, and maybe they're, maybe they're closely related, also this taking of the term CRT and making it mean something more broad than what it originally meant were two kinds of things that really distorted the history so that by the time you get to 2018 2019 2020 and we get this and we get this controversy about crt all of that laid the groundwork for the way that that controversy played out in the first place <laughs>